amidst much focus on people on the move across international borders, um, whether due to conflict, climate change impacts, or merely in a search for life uh, in dignity, most mobilities uh, are actually happening within uh, uh, national borders, within, the, uh, within nation states. And according to the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center, there are some 59 million people who are internally displaced. That's the number from the end of 2021. And uh, there are an estimated 32 million refugees internationally. So just a little bit more than half uh, the number of internally displaced. And that's the number from mid-2022. Uh, and, and this according to the UNHCR. Uh, and while the international legal system is quite clear with regards to protection of those who are displaced across international borders, the same safeguards are not granted to internally displaced. There are no international conventions or legal instruments uh, explicitly uh, addressing their uh, plights. And the very fact of being displaced within a country also changes the premises of uh, international responses from humanitarian actors uh, or, or the types of, of alleviation. Uh, and this is also why we often see uh, uh, larger refugee camps sort of on the other side of the border of major armed conflicts, for instance. At the same time, internal displacement is the situation for most people who are uh, displaced globally for different reasons, as I alluded to. In Syria, for instance, despite how many uh, we have heard about fleeing out of the country to neighboring countries, the, those uh, fleeing to Europe, most of those displaced by the Syrian conflict are displaced internally in Syria. Uh, internal displacement can be caused by a set of different factors, which we'll also hear more about today. Among others, armed conflict, political instability, natural disasters, or other climate-related uh, causes. What exactly causes displacement can be difficult to determine, and which we will also discuss this more, more today. And uh, there can also be multiple layers of vulnerability, uh, determining whether uh, people are actually displaced or not once a crisis hits. And while we now see the immediate impacts of the earthquake in Turkey and northern Syria, uh, which also hits in regions with many internally displaced in Syria and displaced from Syria in Turkey, uh, it is still um, unknown to which extent this will affect uh, whether people have the possibility to stay or, uh, then or uh, see themselves um, needing to flee further. And the line between uh, displacement and other forms of mobility can often be blurred as well, it's important to, to mention, particularly in contexts of protracted insecurity. So what do data say uh, and research say about what causes displacement and how? How do various causes of internal displacement affect men and women differently? Uh, and how does it affect men and women differently in the shorter and longer term? It is a pleasure for us uh, to welcome uh, Mr. Robert Piper, the UN Special Advisor on Solutions to Internal Displacement. Uh, you were appointed to this position in mid-2022, uh, and you're responsible for coordinating the Secretary General's uh, action agenda on internal displacement to operationalize recommendations identified by the Secretary General's high-level panel on internal displacement. Uh, I'll invite you to come up here while I say a few more words about uh, your um, 
vast experience in this field. Y yes, uh, you can sit, so take the seat you, you wish. Uh, working with a small Geneva-based team, uh, his mandate is to work on solutions to displacement through greater high-level member state engagement, stronger linkages to the development system as well, and not only the humanitarian apparatus, uh, and including as well the international financial institutions, and a driving greater collaboration across the breadth of the UN system. Uh, you bring in over 30 years of experience from the UN uh, with development, humanitarian and peace building uh, work in, uh, from both the Middle East um, and Palestine, the Sahel and Nepal, and as well as Kosovo, as you just mentioned. Uh, also in terms of, uh, of um, uh, practicalities, uh, we, uh, this seminar is uh, co-hosted by the Norwegian Centre for Humanitarian Studies, uh, which I mentioned, the PRIO Centre for Gender, Peace and Security, uh, represented also by my colleague Turin uh, here, uh, as well as the PRIO Migration Centre, also represented by my colleague Marta, that I will introduce afterwards, uh, which also illustrates how this topic cuts across several of our research areas. In following your talk, uh, we will hear from uh, two of my researcher colleagues. Uh, first, Halvar Buhag, uh, research director and research professor here at PRIO. Uh, afterwards, Marta Bivan Ardal, research professor uh, in migration studies here at PRIO. And then we'll have um, a comment from Gunnjuudit Ruset from the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, as well as Laila Matar from the Norwegian Refugee Council. But then, without further ado, I'll let you uh, uh, talk, uh, share your uh, insights from your, your work and how you are addressing the topic of internal displacement today. Th thank you, Maria, and, and good morning, everyone. Uh, I didn't realize I'd be on my own. Well, thank you for <laughs> thought I'd have uh, some uh, uh, friends around. But thank you. I am amongst friends, and it's a pleasure to be uh, in Norway again. Uh, always uplifting to visit uh, Norway as a multilateralist and feel that engagement that comes from all walks of life in this country. So, of course, happy International Women's Day. It's also uh, an important day to celebrate uh, and to recognize. And I will, of course, touch on that uh, in, in, uh, in my remarks. And, uh, and thank you to Prio, of course, for, uh, for, for hosting this, for organizing this. And it is great to see such a cross-section. I know I'm amongst all kinds of uh, uh, experts and different organizations from NRC to the Foreign Ministry to Prio to other research organizations with a tremendous amount of depth on this issue. So uh, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, your comments, your advice, and uh, a good conversation afterwards. A big, big thank you for, for, for this. Um, I think just to set the stage a little bit on, on what I'm up to uh, with our small team, as you said, we're just six or seven people at the moment uh, in Geneva, and this is a temporary role. And it really is, I think Maria set the stage, just coming from a recognition that really something has to give. This internal displacement issue has been growing over recent years. It's an issue that we do not understand well. It is not uh, recognized internationally, anything like refugees and migrants are, despite the fact that uh, IDPs could be two or three times the number of, uh, of refugees and maybe 40 times the number of of migrants. It's an issue that keeps falling between the cracks of organizations, maybe in some cases deliberately, in other cases just uh, by negligence and uh, uh, lack of, of kind of attention. And there's a lot of 
misconceptions for those that do follow this issue vaguely that it is a short-term phenomenon that comes and goes and it's handled pretty much by the humanitarian system. Whereas the reality of internal displacement is that more typically it's a protracted affair, 5, 10, 15, even 20 years, depending on the country uh, context. And to think that our humanitarian, humanitarian toolbox can fix this is really unreasonable. Uh, and so we really have a lot of work to do to kind of break out of these assumptions and to get our act together, if you will, on this growing issue. Our Secretary General is someone that you know came from UNHCR. He knows this world of forcible displacement very well and is willing, uh, thank goodness, to commit some of his capital in trying to uh, address this long-standing issue, recognizing that there's a lot of institutional and political issues holding us back, more than there are maybe technical and financial issues. This is uh, the kind of reality. So he commissioned a high-level panel uh, uh, of all the good and great to really kind of look at this issue with a fresh pair of eyes and put some strong political uh, kind of priorities behind uh, uh, the challenges. And that high-level panel's recommendations were largely adopted by the Secretary-General, 98% probably. And with that, he asked us, the UN's family, to translate these ideas into a plan of action, a, a set of actions across the sort of full uh, uh, spread of IDP issues. So looking at the prevention piece, looking at the, the, what we call the response and protection, so the humanitarian, if you will, and then looking at the solutions part, how to move people out of displacement uh, in the first place. And part of that action agenda was to create my office or my function as his advisor just for a couple of years, uh, not a permanent institution, but more as a sort of change management project to try and figure out how do we break through these institutional and political barriers so that we don't keep commissioning high-level panels to tell us a little bit the same thing, but updated, uh, but really get to the kind of core of what is holding us back from where we need to be. The panel and the, the, the action agenda are, are sort of obviously aligned. Uh, they come from the same place. But some key messages come through uh, uh, there. The first is, of course, this issue of uh, visibility. The high-level panel report was called Shining the Light. This idea that this IDP issue needs to be better understood. We need better data. We need a much larger kind of debate about it. We need to make sure that it's not hidden in other discussions. Forcible displacement is an issue now we talk about a lot. There's a lot of uh, work on it, a lot of successful uh, work by UNHCR and others in really getting the refugee issue on the agenda of the World Bank at the OECD DAC. IDPs tend to be put under that heading of forcible, well they are part of the forcible displacement picture, but they tend to be a little bit lost in the crowd. They're not as visible, not as understood, and they are I have similarities, of course, with refugees, many similarities, but there are also some very big differences. So when you speak to a government that is, has an IDP issue, the conversation really should be very different to the conversation you have with a government that's hosting somebody else's refugees. These are your citizens, the IDPs. These are vulnerable people that should be a priority under your SDG uh, uh, kind of agenda, not something you see as a kind of... Uh, uh, external problem, absolutely not, or even a kind of shared problem that the humanitarians should be kind of managing on your behalf. So this issue of visibility is crucial, came through very strongly in the panel. 
The second is about the role of climate in understanding this dramatic increase in, in internal displacement and, and recognizing the, 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 the huge power that climate change has on putting pressure on people's livelihoods, uh, 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 creating this fulcrum between uh, you know, natural resources and conflict and competition uh, that is generating a tremendous amount of displacement. And so when we look at the trends, you've probably heard of the World Bank's uh, a study, the groundswell studies that looked at the potential impact of climate change on mobility, and they projected there anywhere between 150, 230 million people, depending on policy responses, that will be on the move over the coming 25 years because of climate change. And the challenge the panel set us is to make sure that that movement is managed as a development challenge by governments and their partners and not allowed to become a humanitarian catastrophe, as unfortunately it almost always does. So a lot on visibility, a lot on prevention, uh, um, and a key message that this need, we need to broaden the actors on this issue. It's been traditionally seen as a humanitarian issue. It's the NRCs of this world, the UNHCRs and the IOMs that have got it all under control. When in fact we absolutely have to have governments in these countries own the problem themselves, recognize that this is a problem that will not be solved without their leadership. We need to mobilize their development partners, the World Banks, the UNDPs, the UN habitats of this world to support governments in addressing the issue. We need to mobilize the peace and security actors because they are the third part, and I'm in PRIO, so I have to say that, but we believe it sincerely, that the, the peace and security actors are a critical part of trying to move people out of displacement. The solutions piece is absolutely fundamental, often around mediation processes, local, uh, local tensions. And finally, we need financing to translate all of these great ideas into action. And it's not enough to think that with our humanitarian annual humanitarian uh, response plans, we're going to solve the long-term structural issues of, of uh, 60 to 70 million internally displaced persons around the globe many of them in protracted displacement. We need much more creative thinking about financing. Governments themselves, whether it's Iraq or Colombia, who have the resources, Libya, need to be able to put a lot of the resources themselves on the table. But we need the international financial institutions. We need the development parts of our houses, not just the humanitarians in the Norwegian system, but the development people, not just the humanitarians in USAID, but the development side of the house and so forth. We really need to find new uh, financing streams to fix this. As I said, the underlying sense is that the real challenge is political and institutional more than it is a sort of technical or even financial. And this is a little bit why, I guess, I, I am coming from inside the machine. I, I describe myself as a plumber. Uh, uh, you know, 30 years inside the UN, where I've worked in different constituencies inside the UN, and I kind of I have some understanding of what are, where, what are those sort of structural impediments that keep coming up that, that prevent us from doing what we know we should be doing, what are the, the incentives that draw us in the wrong direction and so forth. So uh, I, I have a small office. I won't go into great detail about what we do, but essentially our focus is, is twofold. One is to coordinate this overall work plan for the next two years of the UN and our NGO partners, because many NGOs are also a big part of this story. 
And the second is to go deep on the solutions issue, which is today's main topic. Because we, this idea of how do we move people out of internal displacement really brings all of these issues to the surface. It's clear we need government leadership to make that happen. It's clear we need development investors to really engage in making it happen. It's clear that it needs to have an all-of-society uh, uh, response. Uh, it's clear that this needs to be integrated into the long-term development planning of a government and not left to a humanitarian response cycle. So our big focus, and I'm the advisor on solutions quite deliberately, is this, so our main focus is on developing a model. What does it look like to have a government-led, development-financed uh, 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 solution strategy in a country? What are the key components? How can we learn from what's been done before? And where do we need to innovate? Whether it's on the financing, how to attract new kinds of money, whether it's on the political leadership that is required for these processes. And with uh, my team, we have identified 16 countries, we can talk about that later if there's interest, where we think we have the kind of conditions right to very quickly, remember, two, we've only got till the end of 2024, so to rather quickly develop this model and then, not implement it, but to really develop and launch this model, we hope targeting 10 million IDPs across our 16 countries. And before the lights get turned out, to really step back and look at what are the systemic lessons, what are the systemic recommendations we have to fix the institutional environment in which this has to be done. So the 16 countries are a range of countries from the very climate-oriented scenarios of Vanuatu and, say, Philippines with its, its hurricanes, to the more, more pure, if you will, violence, conflict scenarios of a Iraq or uh, Colombia, but the great majority are somewhere in the middle, uh, Somalia, Sudan, Niger, where you cannot distinguish the climate piece from the violence piece. It's all deeply intertwined. And so in those, but it's not some of the most protracted situations, Syria, too complicated to get a visa, you know, Ukraine in the middle of the war. We're not, we, we, we've been quite pragmatic about picking our 16 and it's not necessarily the most important IDP situations or the biggest IDP situations. It's where we, can, we think we can move this modeling process forward quite quickly so that we can then jump into, you know, that can inform the difficult conversation about, about systems change that has to happen. So if, let me just turn to what a good solution looks like with some focus on gender as well, and then I will, uh, I will uh, you know, happy to answer questions later about that. I think, and I'll be brief, I promise. I think when I think about solutions as we develop this model, a few things really stand out. And if, later in the discussion, we can maybe talk about how they contrast with the thinking up till now. I think firstly, absolutely fundamentally, a good solution is about returning agency to IDPs. This process of being uprooted has massively disempowered, you know, 70 million people around the globe. It's a tremendous loss of control over your destiny that can go on for years and years. So I think, number one, a good solution is one that returns agency to the IDPs. And in our solutions pre 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 prescriptions, we're pushing very hard. Everything we do from the beginning to the end needs to be discussed with IDPs, validated by IDPs, ideally designed by IDPs. And we know we're not very good at this, but this has got to be our number one sort of success yardstick. 
Second, I think a good solution strategy has got to address the drivers of the displacement in the first place. As Maria said, it can be many different factors that have created uh, displacement. Um, but we know many of them are profound and structural. This is why we need development responses and government leadership. Is it climate? Uh, is it uh, resource degradation? Is it violence in your community? Uh, uh, you know, is it, is it food security? Uh, uh, is it access to lack of access to services? Is it profound discrimination and neglect uh, for your region or your community? These are deep set diver, drivers uh, of displacement. So our second good, I think, uh, 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 sort of characteristic of a good solution strategy is one that is willing to tackle the drivers. Uh, and it needs to be informed by good data, good evidence, uh, good analysis. And it needs a long-term engagement. You don't fix a structural driver in 24 months. Number three, a good strategy requires strong government leadership. And we're really pushing this idea that it's not enough to have national ownership. We, this has become a little bit of a motherhood statement we always use. We need political leadership by governments. Solutions are a, can be about compensation, about property, about land, about identity, about electoral uh, kind of uh, rights. And so we really do need strong political leadership from government as well as that national ownership. That's a kind of given. And that is absolutely fundamental in, in the solutions process. Fourth, though, and I want to sort of counter that, we also need to recognize that a good solution strategy is going to happen out there in the field and not here in the capital. So built into our solution strategies has got to be this element of decentralization, of empowering local actors. So we're working in, with the president of the Somali region in Ethiopia, for example. Uh, 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 we, we, most of our solutions are really very much at the local level. In Niger, we're, we're combining our solutions work in DIFA, in the east of Niger, with, the, with a multi-donor effort on decentralization with government trying to convince government this is a good way to test some of your assumptions on, on, on decentralization for the right reasons. So that, that fourth piece is, if the third is strong political leadership, the fourth is about recognizing that the task, though, goes beyond the center, it goes to locally, and it goes beyond government to civil society, of course, and the private sector and other local actors. And then, finally, and not just because it's March 8th, of course, it's crucial a good solution strategy is one that is differentiated in terms of understanding the needs and the vulnerabilities of the, of the IDPs themselves. 75, 80% of IDPs in many scenarios are, are, are women and children. I was in Somalia a couple of weeks ago. 80% of the IDPs in Somalia are, are, are women and children. We know that displacement can have a tremendously negative impact on the on, on women, that vulnerability that was there already is uh, exacerbated. The evidence is very clear. Uh, 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 displacement has had a negative impact on women's access to livelihoods. They are often become single, the, the head of household. They often find themselves in informal settlements where work is much harder to find. We know that displacement has a very negative effect uh, on the risk of gender-based violence for women. Camps are notoriously vulnerable places for women and girls. Uh, uh, we, we see in, in Liberia and Colombia, women are 50% more 
uh, at risk of gender-based violence than, uh, than non-displaced uh, persons. We know that the insecurity in camps can often prevent girls from going to school, and that has this sort of compacting effect on their destiny. We know that displacement can reduce uh, access to uh, uh, reproductive uh, health services, for example. Health services generally, but also reproductive health services. That sometimes in these camps, a lot of the traditional kind of cultural uh, uh, mores kick in and, and, uh, and can prevent uh, 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 proper access to these services. Uh, and this general impact on access to education uh, uh, is something that is a common phenomenon too that affects women and girls in particular. Although there, the picture can be mixed because a well-resourced camp uh, or a move from a very uh, rural setting, a very remote rural setting into a camp can actually, in some instances, actually see an upgrade in the quality of access to education. So it's not always uh, all very bleak. So with all of this evidence, maybe I touch on three uh, elements I think make a good strategy, and they're pretty obvious from what I've been saying. I think first is to our good strategy is going to promote the rights of women IDPs, give them voice in this process. And we have many examples. Uh, uh, Nigeria, I had an organization called Translators Without Borders that I hadn't heard of that created spaces for women uh, uh, who didn't speak the local regional languages to participate in the strategy making uh, process. Uh, uh, we have had other examples in uh, Fiji, for example, on relocations where, 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 where sort of separate dialogue processes have been created. Um, and I think, I, I, I think of the, the Women, Peace and Security Index, for example, that Norway's been uh, uh, very supportive on, that now has a, uh, uh, an element in it around uh, a, a component on looking at forced displacement. And to have that intelligence from that index that has sort of showed us uh, uh, the much greater uh, levels of vulnerability, for example, of women uh, to uh, intimate uh, gender-based violence, for example, uh, the partner violence, for example, is, is, these are the sorts of things that we need uh, uh, to understand in, in creating, giving voice to women in the process. I think second key element, if, I, if I'm going to prioritize, is to position this work uh, around the longer-term development strategy, to look at issues like economic empowerment uh, uh, at the structural barriers of women's access to employment, to political processes, to decision-making processes, and make sure that our solution strategy then has this longer-term vision in terms of reversing these structural barriers. And we have, again, if we have time examples where projects uh, where many of our, I think, our collaborations with organizations like NRC and the UN and others uh, have really tried to strengthen, for example, economic empowerment uh, pieces. But I think in this context, too, we're getting better at understanding the multiple identities of women, not just as women, but maybe as indigenous per per persons, perhaps as heads of households, and all the multiple uh, kind of consequences of those identities in terms of how we respond on solutions. And then I want to flag, and I'm doing it nervously with NRC in the room, but I know they will support this, the importance of housing, land, and property. Because these issues around the legal rights, I think, are absolutely fundamental. When you think about displacement, it's so much about being physically moved from uh, one place to another, of losing access to your property, often of your physical your house, but also your actual assets and properties. And we see time and time again how women... Uh, tremendously discriminated against in terms of their access to land title, in terms of their rights to inheritance. So these vulnerabilities 
I think are really multiplied many times over in a displacement context. So the third key piece, uh, I would say, in a good solution strategy that is gender sensitive is a really strong emphasis on these issues around housing, land and property and the legal, providing legal aid, looking at the larger policy context, the legal context of uh, women's rights vis-a-vis -vis land and inheritance and so forth is a pretty fundamental element of any good strategy. So I think let me just finish then with the, firstly to thank you for, for kind of letting me uh, uh, tell my story, but also uh, to recognize uh, on March 8th that we have some great women that are also leading this effort and they should be here rather than me uh, telling this story. So uh, some of the women I have worked with just in the last three or four months since starting this job, Patricia Tabon, Tabon who is the uh, Colombian uh, head of the, um, the Victims Unit, this tremendous institution, one of the most uh, powerful kind of IDP institutions in the world, 1,200 strong, $1 billion budget in Colombia, who is really pushing the envelope in terms of uh, displacement uh, solutions. I was two weeks ago, I mentioned in Somalia with uh, Zara Abdi. Uh, she is the head of the Ministry of Planning's uh, 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 Solutions uh, Secretariat, tremendous champion. And again, Somalia is our only example of where our solutions work is anchored in the Ministry of Planning. So it is really a, a path breaker in terms of setting that idea of this being such a long-term uh, uh, um, undertaking. And then finally to mention uh, Paolo Gaviria, who is the UN's uh, a special rapporteur on the human rights of uh, IDPs, a, another Colombian, a former head of the Victims Unit, who has become already in the matter of months uh, uh, a real, uh, a very powerful advocate on behalf of IDPs. I think we have lots of incredible women in our sector that we need to celebrate, listen to, and learn from. And, uh, and maybe that's a, a nice place to finish. Thank you so much. Thank you very much also for that final note, but also for, for sharing uh, um, how, you, how you approach this, this topic of internal displacement um, in, in the breadth, in a way, of, of uh, what are the root causes and how we can, can address it. Uh, we are, of course, uh, very happy here at PRIO, at the Research Institute, to hear uh, that you also mentioned the importance of uh, founding this in, in good data and good research what what are the what does the research say about what causes displacement and and uh, and how displacement also affects um, people differently so that transitions well into our next segment where we will hear from two of uh, my colleagues and from their work i'll also just very briefly take the opportunity to mention we we have a range of different projects uh, going on here at prio that are that are relevant to, to, to many of the aspects that you, you mentioned uh, just now. Uh, but I'll mention first, since you uh, specifically mentioned the importance of including the development side into this work, I'll mention uh, one of our largest migration research projects, an EU-funded uh, project called MIGNEX, uh, looking at the, um, the connections between development and migration. There's long, for a long time been an uh, assumption that we need to address development in a way, or from the EU side, we need to address development challenges in order to address uh, migration challenges. But the connections are not necessarily uh, straightforward or unilateral, uh, etc. So in this uh, project, we uh, look at 10 different countries and 26 different areas within these 10 countries where uh, specific development initiatives are followed in order to understand how they affect 
uh, displacement or migration or mobility uh, over over time. So just to to um, to have mentioned that in that project we also look at the EU uh, the EU's policy coherence or incoherence. And I just wanted to mention that as well. As that's something we might come back to in the discussion afterwards. And the challenges in a uh, in an instance like the EU, but probably also like the UN, to to achieve good coherence across different sectors and levels, but also the fact that it's not necessarily possible to have a perfect coherence, but how to think about um, a good coherence of different levels of, of policy. I'll also mention another uh, project um, uh, with a short name, Conmig, uh, led by our colleague um, Andrea Furet-Hollefsen, uh, who uh, that looks at uh, why do some conflict situations, uh, some armed conflict situations, generate massive displacement while others uh, don't, and and seeking to 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 look at uh, what are the variations that lead to to larger scale um, displacement uh, due to conflict. Uh, but on, on this uh, note, I'll, I'll first give the word to uh, my colleague Halvar Buhaug, uh, research professor here at Prio, who will take us through a few slides uh, right, on, um, and talk about um, the title of his talk is We tried to predict flood displacements and failed, and this is why. Oh. Thank you, Maria, and um, good morning, everyone, and happy Women's Day. Um, thanks a lot also to Robert Piper for these very insightful uh, introductory uh, reflections. So I'll try to be brief, but I will report on a recently concluded study that we did, uh, which basically uh, ended up as a failed experiment. Um, although I do think there are insights to be gained for, from that work. Um, very quickly, uh, on flooding, uh, historically that is, uh, along with drought, the most severe uh, type of natural disaster in terms of casualties, although uh, mortality from flooding has declined a lot uh, over time. Uh, it also is a major driver of human displacement and uh, levels of flood-induced displacement has not declined uh, in contrast to uh, fatalities from, from flood events. Um, at the same time, we do observe a huge variation in levels of displacement across seemingly comparable flood events. And so in this particular study, we try to make sense of that variation uh, and looking more into that and try to identify what might be underlying drivers of vulnerability that can explain why certain events generate so much higher levels of displacement uh, than, than other seemingly comparable events. Why does this matter? Well, I think from a, a research point of view, it matters because it's a knowledge gap, but perhaps more importantly from the real world, world um, identifying drivers of vulnerability uh, or better, better indicators of vulnerability could help us then facilitate more effective climate change adaptation, but also um, disaster risk reduction more generally. Um, so we take a, a quantitative and statistical and comparative approach. So we collect data. So basically we have uh, two decades of data uh, for uh, 1,682 uh, major flood events worldwide. Um, and for each of those uh, events, we have statistics based on reporting for the number of displaced persons. Uh, we have information or estimates of the number of people who were directly exposed to flooding in each of these events. And then we have a number of uh, contextual variables to try to capture this underlying vulnerability, including, of course, information on conflict that perhaps could be of particular interest to this research institution and the extent to which conflict might uh, increase displacement risk from flood events. Um, in brief, what do we find? 
Well, basically, all of these contextual variables that capture theoretically uh, informed uh, uh, dimensions of vulnerability, they basically failed to improve the model's ability to predict displacement levels. There's a little bit more nuance to that, but I think for now, let's focus on the main message, which is that we really fail to predict well in, uh, we really fail to predict well on, on, on flood uh, events when it comes to displacement outcomes. Now, why could this be? Um, one obvious uh, uh, response could be that our model is wrong. Maybe it's underspecified. Maybe our theory that is guiding the model is, is incomplete and therefore uh, uh, our predictions are poor. Um, possibly our data are incomplete or have other problems. And based on a further um, investigation, we basically conclude that both of those uh, explanations have some merit. Um, and let me spend a, a couple of minutes trying to explain some of the challenges that, that we were facing in this particular study. So this figure basically tries to visualize what we would expect in terms of level of displacement uh, uh, from flooding. So uh, on the horizontal axis, you have increasing number of people directly exposed to flooding. And uh, it would seem intuitive, and based on case evidence, maybe you would also find support that as displacement levels, uh, sorry, as uh, exposure levels goes up, um, you would also expect displacement to increase, right, on average. At the same time, obviously, based on our insights from statistics, we see that there's a lot of variation, and that variation, which is what we try to explain, uh, is, is supposed to be driven by variation, varying levels of uh, vulnerability across events. At the same time, it would not seem intuitive that uh, the number of people uh, displaced would be higher than the number of people actually exposed. Therefore, we would have this cone shape where the maximum number of people that would be, exposed, uh, would be displaced from an event would be the number of people actually exposed to flooding. That's our a priori expectation of the association between exposure and displacement. Now, how do the data actually look? This is how the data look. In half of the flood events since 2000, the, number of rep the reported number of people displaced from flooding exceed the number of people uh, directly exposed to flooding, right? And we see this massive variation. Uh, um, and in some cases, you know, uh, based on satellite images, uh, seemingly there were no people living in a flooded area, and yet you might have tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people reportedly displaced. Conversely, you might have flood events, uh, satellite data showing that floods uh, occurred in really highly densely populated areas, and yet, reportedly, there were not a single displaced person from that event. Some of that may be uh, true, but possibly uh, this also is a strong indication that we have some challenges with our data. So um, uh, on the modeling side, which is you know one of the two explanations that we uh, re were reflecting on. Obviously, um, uh, flooding does not, or often does not occur in, in isolation. It may be related to tropical storms in particular, and these storms may of course expose additional people uh, to hazards and, and, and lead additional numbers of people to, to flee. And these may then be counted among the flood-driven uh, displaced persons. Uh, so that's one analytical challenge. Obviously also flooding may lead to a number of cascading impacts. It may 
uh, destroy critical infrastructure, it may, may uh, uh, ruin or, or hamper uh, markets, food provision, health uh, clinics, etc., which again may compel people to, to move in order to seek humanitarian assistance uh, across a much larger area than the specific inundated uh, lands. Uh, and then, of course, further down the line, uh, a few days, uh, you might have outbreak of diseases, which again, you know, could lead to additional uh, displacements, uh, which were beyond, you know, the, the, the limited areas where, where the flooding actually occurred. And so because of that, uh, we believe there are good reasons to be skeptical of uh, the flood exposure estimates and that the de facto estimates of uh, the, the de facto number of people exposed to flooding uh, probably can be many, many times higher than what statistics actually suggest. Um, when it comes to data challenges, there is no universal definition of displacement. Uh, we have heard references to this already this morning. Um, does anticipatory evacuation count? Is that included or not? Well, that actually depends on who reports statistics, right? Uh, in some cases, uh, displacement numbers include people who were evac evacuated ahead of disaster. In other cases, they are left out. Um, that causes some problem when you want to compare statistics. Um, how far does a person need to move in order to be a displaced person? For how long does that piece, uh, person need to be away from his or her home uh, uh, or place of residence before that person is displaced? There is no universal uh, uh, agreed upon definition on that. Again, that uh, causes some challenges for reporting. Uh, in addition, obviously, across cases, across countries, but also over time, there be, may be varying levels of accuracy when it comes to media reporting. Um, in some cases, uh, governments might, might have incentives to offer misleading information about the gravity of a situation, either inflating or deflating uh, the situation based on uh, incentives that are uh, uh, irrelevant to the people actually affected by flooding. Um, and obviously, we also have this larger issue of involuntary immobility, people who would have wanted to move and which our model would predict should have moved, but they simply did not uh, because they were unable to do so. Uh, and that we do not have statistics on at all. And so uh, our conclusion on the data challenges is that uh, there's inconsistent reporting across cases and over time, um, and in many cases, uh, probably the number of displacements are highly inaccurate. Uh, and we can also see that by you know, comparing different sources for the same events, so they often um, uh, offer very different uh, numbers. Um, I could say more about the Pakistan floods from last year. Uh, basically, this is just three different sources reporting on the number of displacements, but arriving at very different numbers. UNHCR referring to uh, 7.6 million. At some point that has been adjusted slightly upwards since I think, um, but they also refer to 33 million people affected. And that was then picked up by Nature article referring to 33 million people actually displaced. And then a Wikipedia article from late last year, I haven't checked the updated version, referring to government uh, statistics from the Pakistan government referred to 2.1 million people were left homeless and according to the IDMC definition of a displaced person that's basically a person who has to flee their home and so then that could be taken as an alternative estimate for the number of displaced persons from a very uh, um, high profile and recent event where we would presume that uh, the, uh, the availability of precise information would be higher than for what uh, occurred 15-20 years ago in the uh, in, a, in a more remote country. Okay, so just to uh, quickly wrap up, um, uh, as scholars, but also I think as practitioners, uh, uh, we do need a better understanding and a more shared understanding of what is displacement. 
and here I think a, a legal or at least policy sanctioned uh, official definition uh, would help data collection. Um, we need better displacement data. Um, data provided by the IDMC and UNHCR can be helpful for many purposes, and in some cases they're also extremely detailed, yet they are not tailored to the types of research that we wanted to do here, uh, and other providers of statistics on uh, floods and other types of weather-related disasters. Either they do not offer displacement statistics at all, such as MDAT, uh, or they offer statistics, the DFO, Dartmouth Flood Observatory, uh, but these data suffer from quality and reporting, which we have shown. Um, and this is also perhaps an, a topic we might want to reflect on a little bit in the panel later on. Uh, I think it would be helpful to try to separate better to the extent possible and meaningful between good and bad displacement. What do I mean by that? I mean, displacement is disruptive and it is something that is unwanted. Yet, displacement can be risk-reducing if conducted with agency and with uh, uh, um, anticipation. Uh, but it can, of course, obviously be an impact, right? And so in a highly capable society, you might have high levels of displacement because people are evacuated. In a less capable society, you might have high levels, levels of displacement because people are impacted, right? Those two types of displacement are qualitatively different. Uh, but in our statistics, they look the same. Um, and finally, also do not forget people who do not move. Some of them might not want to, some of them might want to, but are unable to. Of course, these are blurred lines between those uh, simple categories, uh, but basically they are invisible. They do not show up in our statistics, uh, yet they can be some of the most vulnerable people when disaster strikes. Um, we have a paper coming out uh, uh, quite soon, so uh, stay tuned. Uh, please read it when it is out, and um, thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Halvard. Uh, this is really interesting and, and a good uh, also uh, input to this discussion uh, today. I'll now invite uh, Marta Bivan Erdal uh, up to, to share your presentation. Uh, Marta is also a research professor here at PRIO and will talk about whether uh, protracted displacement can end, uh, drawing also on her research from another research project here at PRIO, uh, notably her research in, in Sri Lanka. Thank you very much, uh, Maria. Good morning, everyone, and happy International Women's Day. Uh, I haven't coordinated with Halvar, but I, but I might have done, <laughs> because I'll pick up basically where he is leaving off. So I'm going to start off with a question that I hope will be a little bit provocative, which is, can protracted displacement end? Whether it should or ought to, maybe is another thing, but can it end? So I'll start with that, and I'll come back to it in a moment. And I'll then pick up where I <laughs> left off on the definitions. And I won't go on for long, but I'll ask a few quite foundational questions, which mainly relate to which duration and what distance, which is exactly what Halvar already said. And I think this sort of is the beginning <laughs> and end of the conversation in many ways. And I think it's really important, not just because of the research interest we have and the data that that's connected to. That's important in its own right to understand the phenomena. I think it's also important to try and think about um, the topic of our seminar, namely what are good solutions. And if we don't know uh, who the displaced people are, we can't even start to look at that. But also if we don't really think carefully about duration and distance in terms of how we define the phenomenon, uh, defining the success of solutions becomes almost impossible, I think. I've also got an image from the Pakistan floods, uh, and I've also <laughs> looked at recent data, especially from the Sindh province, uh, which was among those uh, quite affected uh, around the Indus Delta, among other. Uh, in the Sindh province, 
I don't know the quality of the data, but apparently as of early March this year, there are now some 89,000 people who are still displaced, according to the Sin government. So again, very, very different numbers in terms of when in time you're looking at this data as well. Which brings me to the point of when is the counting done? And for a lot of the data that we have, it's annual. Uh, which is completely useless for most internal displacement. Sadly, it's it's necessary for a lot of other displacement, but for a lot of the short duration uh, displacement, which we know there is a lot of, we don't actually know what is going on. And those are probably the people where the humanitarians are the most central actors, right? So I guess my argument also talking about protracted displacement is that that's probably where this humanitarianism development interface is the most important, because that's where the development actors really become uh, most central. Okay, so I've raised the definition questions again, and I hope we will come back to them in the, the panel discussion afterwards as well. So what I'll do um, briefly here is sort of the, the counterpart. What we often do at Prior, I think we have this sort of large-scale data things, and then we have the case studies. So I'm also doing that here. Uh, and I'll tell you a little bit about the case of the eviction of the northern Muslims in Sri Lanka in the next couple of minutes. Uh, this is drawing on research uh, with primarily colleagues in Sri Lanka, uh, but also Katrina Brun from the Lebanese uh, Studies Center, uh, and is part of a project funded by the Research Council of Norway called Holding Aid Accountable, Relational Humanitarianism in Protracted Crisis, which is led by Research Professor Cindy Horst here at Pro. So, I would like, first of all, to ask you a question. Whom of you knows about the story of the eviction of the northern Muslims in Sri Lanka? If anyone knows, you can raise your hand. I know at least a couple of people <laughs> in the room do. <laughs> okay, it's it's a very long time ago. I'm sure everyone here knows about the, the violent civil war in Sri Lanka that uh, raged from 1982 till 2009, including um, peace uh, negotiation efforts by the Norwegian state, which unfortunately didn't uh, work out in, in the mid-2000s. This case of protracted displacement is a very specific case. And one of the reasons why I wanted, sort of after moving back and forth between whether it was a good idea to mention it or not, to do it is that all protracted displacement situations, and in fact, all internal displacement situations are specific cases as well. So we do need to have the kind of meta overview picture, but we also do need to recognize that every situation is specific. And to have good solutions, we need to understand the specific dynamics, whether they are political, uh, religious, gendered or otherwise in the particular cases. But that's not to say it's unique and we can't sort of learn anything from it. I think we can and I'll try to come to that uh, at the end. But very briefly then about this case, uh, it's very protracted. 1990 is a long time ago. Uh, numbers again are an issue. Estimates vary, but at least 70,000 Muslims were evicted uh, by the then LTTE uh, out of the northern parts of Sri Lanka, mainly the Jaffna area, but also uh, the, the Mana area. Uh, this was pretty violent, and I won't go into details about the case study. If you're interested, there are materials we can share about it. It was a very unique um, situation in the sense that it happened in a, in a span of very few days in October uh, 1990. So maybe quite specific in that sense, but also maybe quite similar to other types of disaster-related uh, displacements that we could imagine. Now, what I think is interesting is that this is one of very, very many cases which is so protracted. It's not unique, sadly, in, in that sense. But I think it's interesting because there are also some solutions. So maybe it's a case to learn from uh, in that sense. Although my question of whether protracted displacement can end is still pertinent for this case. So I'm going to share with you a couple of quotes from interviews that we've conducted last year with our Sri Lankan colleagues uh, in relation to this ca case study in, in Sri Lanka. So here's one quote. Soon after they, the IDPs, arrived in Puttalam, the mosque took them to the schools, provided them meals for around three to four days, and helped them to reach the places where they wanted to go. 
Many people here gave them own their own lands for the migrants. In the beginning, the displaced community was vulnerable, but later, quickly, they became empowered and self-organized. When people migrated, there were 3,950. Now they have doubled or tripled. Government should take that into account. So these three quotes are from uh, people who are living in uh, the Puttalam and Mana areas, who have been living with people who are displaced. We've also interviewed a lot of people who were displaced themselves, and notably their children. Uh, there are some grandchildren around as well, but mainly their, their children as well. So very briefly then, uh, based on this, how can we think about what do good solutions to internal and protracted displacement look like? So first of all, the obvious answer, which is always the answer when we talk about this, whether it's about refugees or internal displacement, so return, resettlement or local integration. But we see in the data that we have, and from, from earlier research here as well, that the experiences and preferences among the displaced populations are hugely different. And this has a lot to do with generation, it has to do with gender, it has to do, of course, with class and privilege and who you were before you left. Rights, realization of rights in politics, the issue of housing and land is, is everywhere. And it's everywhere also in different locations within the country. It really matters where that land and property might be or not. And people relate to that reality in very different ways. Then demography really matters. So thankfully, also in this context of displacement and comforting Sri Lanka, child mortality has uh, sort of improved and, and, and the situation is better for many people in many ways, which means that if there were 3,950 people who left a particular part of Jaffna in 1990, one household has become nine. How do you even think about return in that context? It is a very confined city on a peninsula. So the very sort of spatial, demographic, geographic aspects of that really matter. And then the issue, which I was very happy that you already mentioned, Robert, in terms of identity. So people also change, and there are questions of belonging that are very dynamic, but they're also very political, and in this case, which is also not unique, extremely politicized, which complicates how you can think about good solutions. So to end then, I asked this question, can protracted displacement end? And I think our impressions from our case study is that uh, the community that we've worked with don't agree with this among themselves. So some people think that it can't because it's become an ex existential identity type of issue. Some people believe it can't because they can't go back where they were initially because of these demographic, geographical and other issues. And other people are quite happy to have become uh, residents of Putulam and they don't see the displacement needing to end by them moving because they've now become part of some other community. And that in that sense, it has ended through a local integration, but without that necessarily being recognized, certainly by the community as a whole. We see that the roles of actors in the solutions are really central, both the displaced populations, but of course also different political level actors and the local communities where they are living in. We also see in our interviews and in our discussions that there are so many different terms being used. What to do with that, I'm not necessarily sure I have the answer to, but it comes straight back to the definition. And it comes back to the definition becoming quite political in many contexts as well. And whether, or that, whether or not that aids solutions, I think, is, is an important question also to, to reflect further on. But I do think that this question of whether protracted displacement can end is a real question. And I think it really also speaks to questions about moving and staying and seeing those as integral to development and social change in societies. So where you move or where you stay would also matter in terms of the solutions. And for many people, the assumption is going back is the resolution. And for very few, that is necessarily what, it, what will end up being the solution. So then the question is the solutions to what and for whom exactly, especially in the context then of not just 20 years, but many more. Thank you.
Thank you very much, uh, all, all of you. Um, I'll start with asking you, um, Gunn Jorid Roset, you are the director of the multilateral section at the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, so maybe first to, to hear how, how you see this ad agenda on solutions uh, to internal displacement from, from your perspective, how, how Norway works with this, and perhaps also a perspective on, on how to address this sort of cross-sectorally, uh, and not only from, in, for instance, the humanitarian system, but also uh, with the development sector and, and other, other parts as well. So thank you, and good morning, and thank you to, to colleagues who have uh, presented very valuable insights this morning. And uh, as I said, I come from the multilateral department in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and we, in that department, uh, have the section for humanitarian affairs, the section for overall general or UN policy, uh, the human rights section, and also the international development banks. So we have quite a lot of tools in our toolbox uh, when it comes to <laughs> addressing this issue. And I think, uh, to be honest, this, the ones who have been pushing this agenda really up on the Norwegian policy sort of uh, attention and, and uh, bringing this forward, since we have had a long history uh, also of uh, putting focus on IDPs and displacement, uh, uh, has been sort of the humanitarian uh, sector, because I think then they're sort of the, the one who also hear from this through their partners, through the first responders. Uh, but they have also been the ones trying to to broaden the discussion and in engage and include other parts uh, of uh, the sort of whole development assistance uh, um, portfolio in Norway and also within, within our own department. So I'll pick up on some of the points that I think uh, Robert said and of course uh, Happy Women's Day to everybody so maybe I focus uh, a little bit on, on what we do on gender equality because I agree I think we really have to look at uh, what we do on the sort of policy priorities also in the long-term development uh, uh, policy and see how we can uh, look through a lenses of also worrying or, or focusing on displacement uh, in, in that uh, sense. Um, and uh, as I said, as you said, this is cannot be solved by a humanitarian response alone. Uh, and I think for us, of course, the part of the development assistance budget that has increased most significantly uh, over the last years have been the humanitarian budget. So, of course, we've had also maybe the the tools and the funds to to sort of come up with at least um, uh, some response. And I think a, a lot of the actors who have also been raising this has been the ones working more on, on you know, the refugee response and had, that's been sort of the, the center of expertise. Uh, so uh, that's, uh, of course, a good thing. But now, of course, what's what will be the next uh, step? And maybe to see it a bit sort of in a tabloid way, it cannot be solved by the Nordic countries alone uh, either, although we are fortunate to have you know, a political consensus and uh, that uh, we should uh, keep a high uh, ODA and a development assistance budget, but we need to think sort of outside the traditional uh, players. And I think, as you said, also then to, to sort of uh, mobilize resources domestically in the countries uh, uh, where uh, people, uh, displaced people are, that's very important. But of course, the challenge is that a lot of these countries are already very fragile and, and vulnerable. Um, I would like to say that uh, since we are talking uh, about this also today at the International Women's Day, um, 
maybe say a few words also on, on some of the priori priorities that we do and some of the questions that we would like to, to raise in the further work. And I think I'm glad also that we have been focusing on data um, this morning. And I think that we also need reliable data uh, on women and girls IDPs so that uh, we can uh, answer with good policies and programs to, to support them. Um, so that we can also tailor the, the resources to their needs. Uh, and I think also since protection of civilians is really a, a core in the Norwegian foreign policy, not only in the humanitarian policy, but I mean, something that we, we uh, remain very focused on. I think uh, we see that the displaced women and girls tend to be at greater risk of deprivation, insecurity, abuse, neglect, and, and uh, uh, yeah, a worsening of their well-being. Uh, and we are this year um, updating and working on a new action plan for uh, gender equality uh, and women's rights in the foreign and development policy. Uh, so I think uh, that uh, should also be valuable to the work focusing on displaced uh, women. We will we'll also be updating our uh, uh, action plan on women, peace and security, uh, which I think we can also then try to, to bring into this discussion. Uh, we also just uh, launched uh, as the whole government, not only the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, a new action plan to bolster efforts for gender and sexual diversity, uh, because I think also uh, we see that the uh, countries where who have le laws or you know persecution of people from the LGBTQI community uh, um, are uh, especially vulnerable so I think that's something that we can also think uh, on how we use some of these more long-term strategies also uh, in in uh, in in this uh, work and uh, as I said uh, and uh, I'm glad you also mentioned the, the SGBV and um, uh, risk of, of increased uh, vulnerability to that. Uh, and since uh, I, th I know that you will be also working with other uh, or discussing with other colleagues in the ministry later uh, today, uh, but I think also what you said about how we can include the international financing institutions uh, uh, in this discussion is, is very uh, important and uh, I think that's and their focus on on uh, on uh, domestic resource mobilization and and providing advice to governments on how they uh, come up with policy plans and uh, and uh, reforms and these things is very very important. Uh, yeah, so I think I'll leave it at that so that we'd rather have time for some questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, um, uh, Leila Matar, you are the Media and Advocacy Director at the Norwegian uh, Refugee Council. Can you tell us also, hearing these different interventions, can you, it will be useful for us to hear a little bit how you uh, work with questions of not only internationally displaced, but, but internal displacement in, in your work, and perhaps both what are the main, the main challenges and what are maybe some points where, where things are, are moving forward. No, thank you very much, and, and thanks for the very insightful comments uh, by others, and it's good to have you with us here, uh, Robert Piper. Um, I mean, we, we uh, obviously work uh, extensively on displacement. That's our focus, so both internal displacement and refugees, and I very much agree with what's been said about internal displacement being hidden within uh, and that the, the need to disaggregate that from uh, broader forcible dis displacement. I think that helps point us towards the specific challenges, and I'll speak to some of that. 
Uh, maybe just to say, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, we are humanitarians. My organization is a humanitarian organization. But as you were saying, Yurid, we would be the first to say that a development approach is needed and that an expansion of the field to bring in development actors and governments is absolutely critical to find durable solutions for internal displacement. That doesn't mean that humanitarian needs are not there and growing, including for the internally displaced, but uh, it's too narrow of a focus, which I think has blocked and hidden solutions that, that can be explored. Um, one thing we have been working on, though, is, is exploring and, and identifying some of the risks that come with this approach. So while we very much support the approach, I think it's important to be cognizant of some of the risks that are inherent to it. And that, of course, is particularly the case when we're working with development actors or especially governments that themselves are implicated in uh, the drivers for displacement um, or have been parties to a conflict, for example, that has been driving displacement. Um, and this takes us back to what you were saying, Robert. I mean. IDPs are citizens, right, which puts us squarely within a human rights framework where mm -hmm. states are duty bearers. So having that rights perspective in this conversation is something that's uh, been very important to us and, and looking at protection while we explore solutions. So to give a few examples, so as NRC, we work in uh, over 45 countries, uh, mainly on displacement and conflict settings, and we see on the ground some of the protection challenges that start to arise specifically in a development um, context. So my colleagues shared examples, uh, for example, in Sudan, uh, where the government appointed a military official as their IDP solutions uh, focal point, which you can begin to imagine some of the implications of that in such a highly politicized and sensitive context. In Mozambique, uh, our colleagues um, have identified that the UN is welcoming Total, the oil company, into the discussions on solutions, uh, despite their very problematic role in arguably fueling the conflict in some areas. Again, doesn't mean we shouldn't be speaking to these actors because most often you need to speak with the most tricky and complex actors precisely to have progress, but it does point us to look at a bit of the, the challenges that need to be mitigated uh, to be successful in this work. We um, have been focusing on a couple of tracks for that. One of our absolute priorities um, is uh, capacity building for development actors that are engaging in this solutions conversation. The first step would be to have very clear guidance on what it means to put protection at the center um, and embed protection and rights in all the processes and documents that are used to trigger and kickstart the conversations with uh, development actors, governments, UN resident coordinators, and others that are part of this landscape and, and, and architecture. Sometimes it is, in fact, a lack of know-how. Um, as was said by others, it's often been humanitarians that have been grappling with protection challenge, challenges for internally displaced. So transferring that knowledge and helping development actors ask the right questions is, is key to, to succeed and to identify the safeguards that are necessary when we identify solutions. But I think as everyone here knows, certainly, um, capacity building is really just a small part of the story. Um, it's political will that it boils down to. And so it's important to also uh, not be naive about what can be fixed through technical fixes and do more of that uh, deeper uh, investigation of the drivers of conflict and the hard-hitting advocacy to actually change uh, some of the variables. Um, and of course, there are some cases where there simply will not be the political will, where internal displacement is instrumentalized. But in, in the cases where it is possible, uh, it's important for us to simultaneously with capacity building ensure that there is 
is a building of political will. And again, to make any of this happen, it's important that protection risks are systematically understood, that they're mitigated, and that they're proactively addressed as part of a solutions process. And this, of course, means that plans and strategies have to be designed with this in mind. And that we are sensitive to the particular local context that others have said as well. And I think civil society has a really important role to play there, both uh, international but especially local. Um, and the agency piece, of course, is, is really important. And I also think that research and, and evidence is really key to making sure that we have a context-sensitive protection approach to durable solutions. I'll end with uh, just a couple of words um, on the distinct needs of, of different groups, um, given the, the gender perspective, which is really, really critical in this discussion. And of course, different groups require different safeguards. Um, in fact, the example that you brought up, Robert, was, was one that I had in mind as well. Uh, we've seen that in some contexts, depending on the legal frameworks, female-headed households, for example, might struggle to claim housing land and property, um, and it can create real barriers to durable solutions. So while trying to find durable solutions for a broader population, sometimes uh, different genders and, and women, especially in this example, might end up being the losers of that solution. Um, we have other examples right now in Afghanistan and Yemen, which I know are both priority countries uh, for, for, the, uh, for the office, where this is obviously a very live issue. Um, and it's, of course, not just for, for, for women. This is true for other minorities. When I was in Yemen, um, some of the um, discriminated against minorities that I met with were actually happier in a humanitarian context. You know, they'd actually benefited in a way because they were so systematically discriminated against. And not all, but some of them honestly said, no, I, I don't want durable solutions because they fear returning to um, a status quo before war or they fear that they will be the losers of any permanent solutions. So having that lens is extremely important and, and the distinct needs. Um, because I think there is a risk as humanitarian actors and development actors that while trying to do uh, the right thing and finally find durable solutions, we could inadvertently entrench uh, human rights violations and discrimination. So I think deeper work needs to be done. We need to explore collaborations and, and build alliances, as I said, proactively address the discriminatory gender norms and, and their instrumentalization by people in power, which is often a big part of the problem. Um, and I think uh, maybe not in all, um, all settings, not the most extreme, but in many others we can succeed. And so that I think um, means you have a very sound approach in choosing countries as well, where we can demonstrate how this is possible with, with protection hopefully at the center. Thank you very much, Leila, uh, also for sharing sharing these important points. Uh, just very briefly, before I open up for some questions from, from the audience, one follow-up question for you, uh, Robert, on precisely, you mentioned also now durable solutions. And when you um, talk about the action agenda uh, on solutions to internal displacement, it also makes us think uh, about the, the work on durable solutions for refugees, for in internationally displaced. Uh, what's... Um, what can you say that we can learn from? Of course, the situation is different from internationally displaced and internal displaced, but what can we learn from the, the many years of work on, on finding durable solutions for refugees? What can you take with you from that to the work on internal displacement? Yeah, I think, I mean, we could uh, briefly, I think this language of durable solutions has come very much from the refugee world. And, uh, and it's a notion that this is going to be a very protracted process. We, the, the duty bearers, if you will, are very dispersed on the refugee file, uh, potential countries to receive, etc. So we've got to gear up for the long term 
and minimize, you know, minimize the negative impact of this refugee displacement across the border. And in time, we've got very good at convincing governments that they can benefit from this, the host governments, and bring these refugees into their displacement, into their development uh, planning. But th that concept doesn't translate so well into the internal displacement. We've, we have imported it. Uh, we've been using this terminology around durable dis uh, uh, solutions for IDPs. But uh, it, it, again, sort of sets, in this case, we don't want to set IDPs up for a protracted displacement. Uh, we don't want, uh, we do know where the rights, uh, the duty bearers are. They're very clearly defined. There's no ambiguity about that. Uh, and we have, uh, you know, SDG strategies that are uh, working on vulnerability and on leaving no one behind. Why don't IDP, why, we really do need to kind of use this, a different sort of mindset in terms of the way we engage governments. So this durable solutions piece, we're trying to use different language a little bit to, to just to make that point. It's not a competition, it's just very important, I just want to say, but it, we do need to see the similarities, but recognize the differences in terms of responsibilities and roles and, and, and what follows from that. I think that being said, there's lots to learn. There are lots of commonalities, of course, someone that's uprooted, whether they crossed a border or didn't, have needs that are very similar from a shelter to security to livelihoods to access to services. I think where there is the greatest commonality is on the issue of return. So when refugees are going home back to, a back to their countries of origin, then it is exactly the same conversation and often the drivers are the same ones about discrimination, about protection concerns, security issues. And so I think there's a tremendous amount, the, the, the way in which, you know, UNHCR, NRC and others have gone about returns processes. And I was actually involved in one in Cambodia in 1991 in my very first, uh, well, one of my first jobs in the UN. And we can learn a lot from, from how we've gone about uh, doing that. And we can also, and I'll stop on this, we can learn a lot about, about the extent to which we can use legal sort of policy processes, legislative processes, uh, 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 to reinforce the rights of IDPs in, in domestically. And I think there, again, um, you know, you, obviously refugees, there's a very strong kind of legal jurisprudence around that. It can't be reproduced exactly, but there is a lot of lessons on the impact that has had on standards, on, on accountabilities and, and so forth. So lots to learn. Thank you very much. Uh, perhaps I can I can pick up again uh, from you, Marta or Halvard. How how would you, uh, or maybe to start with you, Marta, how would you follow up on this uh, question on what can be in a way learned from the work on uh, towards uh, internationally displaced and refugees to to address uh, the situation of internally displaced. Thanks. It's, it's a big question, <laughs> but I can share some ideas. I think, firstly, of course, the main thing is the difference, right? So as everyone has been pointing out, uh, if you're internally displaced, uh, your government has, uh, you're a citizen. And if you're not, you're a status person, so that becomes a whole other issue. But if you are a citizen, then it's very clear who, who's supposed to be responsible. And then it's a question of human rights and discrimination probably more than, than anything else. So kind of it has to sit there. But then I do think there are things that, that of course, can be sort of transposed to some extent. And I think there are a couple of points I can mention. One is just picking off what you said about return, where I think um, there are some risks as well. <laughs> I think I think there are, you know, return issues when it comes to refugees also haven't necessarily been managed very successfully always. And there is this whole issue again of, of you know, the children of refugees returning to a home they've never been to. 
uh, and sort of the, the sort of emotional dimensions of that, but also just the very practical dimensions of land, property, uh, those types of things, right? And knowing how to actually make a livelihood in a rural area in a particular country, for instance. So I think that is a sort of, it's a space for learning, but also for learning from mistakes, probably. Um, and I think a second dimension that comes back to what I was sort of trying to talk about in the example I drew out, uh, which is about time. And I think what we know from research in general about migration is that successful return generally has a couple of preconditions. First one being when more than five years has passed, it becomes more tricky. That's sort of a very crude generalization, but there's something to it. So time is a real thing, and I think that really matters uh, in these contexts as well. I, of course, if it's not five years, but like a generation, it becomes a whole other uh, issue. But I think that really is something to, to sort of think yeah, think about the implications of in terms of how solutions can be managed in a temporally sensitive way as well. And then I think the other area where there may be more learning also can be done is perhaps local integration, where I think um, there are some success stories, despite <laughs> despite what we may sort of seem to hear from the media in many Western countries. There are a lot of successful uh, examples of refugee local integration in the global south, uh, also further afield in Europe as well. Uh, and it is m then at a political level again about how you speak about the society you have and how you speak about rights and differences and different ethnic oppositions and different mixing to what used to be once. And these are in many contexts very political questions. So th the issue Laila brought up about political will, political discourse becomes quite important. And again, I think there are lessons to be learnt, um, both from mistakes and risks and also good examples, I think, uh, in that area as well. Thank you very much, uh, Marta. We have now two questions uh, in the audience. I'll just ask quickly uh, one question that you can reflect on, uh, Halvar, and then take two questions from, from the audience. Uh, so yeah, I, I wanted to pick you up on, on these different numbers that you, you, you showed to, like how, how different sources would refer to very different types of numbers. And maybe it goes without saying, but could you maybe uh, share some reflections on uh, beyond, of course, for the research and for feeding into the work of humanitarian organizations and the UN in planning responses. But how important is it, or why is it important that these numbers that are announced in, in the media and by humanitarian organizations are, 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 are solid and well-founded numbers in, in a way? Thank you so much. I'm uh, the ambassador of Palestine to Norway. Um, it's really amazing to, to see so much numbers. This is a huge number of displacement. But unfortunately, I have to go to, to the other side of, of the world. In Palestine, we have many refugees, external and internal. And we have uh, people like being displaced twice or three times or even more. And now we are facing um, real displacement by the occupation by Israel, especially in the Jerusalem area or uh, in specifically um, at Sheikh Jarrah area. Those people been uh, displaced since 1948 after the, the occupation, the Nakba and Israel uh, took over half Palestine. And now Israel is demolishing their homes again in this displaced uh, area. And they started with 28 homes, and then they um, promised to stop that, but they are demolishing now one by one, so it won't take this a huge image for of displacement of families. Is there any, um, of course, this is to Mr. Peter, 
Um, is there any strategy or plan to stop this displacement in the region? And I know that you are much engaged with the displacement, maybe permanent displacement or preliminary displacement by um, natural disasters or by conflicts. Thank you. Thank you very much. We are almost out of time, so I'll just have a very brief question uh, here and then give you the chance to give a very short uh, response. Thank you. My name is Rory. I'm a master's student at UAO. Actually, a follow-up question, I guess, mostly on the data, just very interesting in the process of research dealing with problematic data and how you, the best kind of code of practice, I guess, in approaching it and how you might accept it or reject these problems of data. So thank you very much for the interesting insights. Thank you very much. Uh, I will maybe let you first address the question from the ambassador uh, from Palestine. Yeah, no, thank you very much. The, the, a very big topic, and of course, I, I'm, I was the humanitarian coordinator for the occupied Palestinian territories, so uh, I, I know the context. I've lived that environment very uh, personally, and, uh, and I, I, I've witnessed these processes of demolitions and so forth. I mean, I, I can't speak today for the UN's operation in Palestine, but what I can say, uh, uh, then, uh, and I know still now, there is a big, you know, a, a big system response to these challenges in the occupied Palestinian territories, from legal aid uh, uh, to advocacy that we do internationally uh, in terms of protecting the rights of Palestinians in different areas in the West Bank and, and in Gaza. So we do, I mean, I, I, don't, I, I need to be careful now. I've been gone five or six years. I can't sort of describe exactly what is happening on the ground. But, uh, but, but this is a long-term preoccupation of the UN system in the occupied Palestinian territories. But it's quite also quite true that we're losing the battle if you measure it by uh, the accelerated numbers of people that are losing their homes, the demolition uh, processes, and so forth. So I'm, I can't paint a... Uh, a rosy picture, and you have not either. I, I wish I could. I think on the disaster side, it's a much broader issue, and there we need to work a lot better with uh, with uh, our disaster reduction people and our climate people. So I've been quite a lot in touch now in the last few weeks with them. The different actors like the Gr Global Green Fund and, and others to figure out how we can better connect up those financing instruments with uh, the work we need to do on mobility manage that so it doesn't become uh, a, a displacement crisis. But the, the tragedy of this, and they know this, is that the countries that are most on the front line in terms of the impact of climate on displacement are also the ones almost invariably with the least capacity to access these financing instruments. So we have this kind of contradiction that the funding is gravitating towards places that are naturally better equipped uh, to manage uh, those funds and to respond to those challenges, um, um, but they're also the ones that are least, also best equipped to manage the threat. And uh, and so coming from Somalia with three million people displaced, maybe uh, at least two thirds of whom are displaced by drought, where there is a very strong case of relationship between climate as a driver and displacement, it's almost impossible for them. Uh, to see how they could access uh, uh, these financing instruments. So part of our job is to figure out how do we move the risk threshold of these uh, uh, funds uh, so that we can be a bit better responsive on, on these things. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, very brief comment, if you have, on the, on the data. 
Yes, I'll, I'll provide three very brief reasons for why uh, we need better data and more accurate uh, estimates um, on displacements. Um, first, obviously, just in order to understand the gravity uh, of the situation on the ground uh, for immediate humanitarian assistance, it does matter uh, whether we are talking about uh, displacements in the number of thousands or in the number of hundred thousands, right? Uh, so for that reason alone, uh, I think good reporting uh, and a good understanding of what's going on on the ground is, is important. Um, also in terms of providing, you know, uh, early warning models that can then also facilitate early action. Again, the models are dependent on, on, on good data in order to uh, offer good uh, for early warning forecasts. Uh, so again, that is inherently dependent on, on data quality and also thinking more long term about, you know, uh, uh, disaster risk reduction, um, um, understanding of how to best adapt to changing environmental conditions and to climate change. Uh, we do need to understand how the uh, uh, local socioeconomic political security context affect vulnerability. Uh, and the best way to do that is through analysis. And then again, uh, our, our policy recommendations might be ill-advised if they are based on really inaccurate understanding of what's going on. Thank you very much uh, to, to all of you. Thank you very much, uh, Robert Piper, for, for joining us here today. And thank you, everyone, for sharing your, your insights and, and knowledge on, on this topic. Uh, and wish you a good day of meetings <laughs> today. Thank you very much, everyone. And, and please join me in thanking the panel. And thank you, everyone, for coming.